Welcome to this episode of the Vet and Goods podcast. I have a very special guest, uh, Dwarkesh Patel, who is who runs his own uh, podcast and blog called the Lunar Society. Uh, I, d- I don't think Dwarkesh needs any introduction among my listeners. Glad to have you on, Dwarkesh. Oh, that's so kind. Thanks for having me on, man. So, you know, you've been running your podcast for a long time now. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, interesting guests. And one of the um, things I found quite interesting was in March, you talked to Ilya, uh, OpenAI's chief scientist. And in April, you talked to Elisir Jutkowski, sort of the uh, chief scientist of the rationalist AI risk wing of the world. These two people have very diverging views on the on the future of the of the world, if you may. I generally uh, have the impression that when we talk about the AI risk camp, a lot of people think in abstractions. You know, they think of optimizers and they think of uh, meta optimizers. On the other hand, when you're in the so-called trenches building these these things, these abstractions make less sense to you because you're you know you see the you see the rough edges and you you don't really uh, see them as, as abstractions anymore. How much of this do you Thing drives the divergence in uh, estimates of AI doom between the two groups? That, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, I, I, like, I think the difference is overstated in some sense. I mean, obviously, there's a difference between Eliezer's 99% doom and Ilya's whatever low double digit it is. I, I don't know if he's ever said it publicly, but you know, he signed that letter that was about you know, the AI, is, uh, AI is a risk on the scale of pandemics and nuclear war. In, in fact, some of the people most concerned about AI are often the people working on it, you, you know, at these companies. So I'm not sure how big the difference actually is. As far as, you know, it's interesting. One of the th- things Ilya said on the podcast was that practitioners in AI are most likely to underestimate progress in the field because they see the problems up close, but they don't see the potential up close in the same way. And I wonder if the same thing comes up when they have to think about these abstractions like maze optimizers, where you can see up close some small circuit that's supposed to addition and how it works. But okay, can you see things like drives come up? Um, maybe that's more distant. Am I correct in, in, in understanding you by saying that you know the, the abstractionists, if you will, are closer to being correct than the people who see the rough edges? Yeah, I don't know, because the mechanistic interpretability research for, you know, for the audience is just an alignment approach where you try to look inside a neural network and see what sorts of uh, what, what is actually happening at the circuit level. That is very much just trying to delve deep into how it works. And obviously, those people wouldn't be doing that research unless they were concerned about alignment. So do you think there actually is a difference, or a meaningful difference between practitioners and and the theorists, uh, like a, in terms of how likely they think Dumas? Yeah, actually, in my in my somewhat anecdotal experience, the people who sort of work on aligning these models, sort of work on, you know, at constitutional AI at, at, at uh, Anthropic or who worked on forecasting AI with, with scaling laws, are generally more optimistic than people who theorize about these. One reason is that it's easier to, to fall into a certain way of uh, thinking when you when you feel like you've hit a certain conclusion that is aesthetically pleasing and many times no matter how hard you try it is hard to escape that i'll i'll give you an analogy sometimes if you do a math problem and you want to, and, you, and you redo it to check it if you're right you know a lot of times even if you're wrong your mind jumps to the same method of doing it and the and the same mistake is repeated so um my answer is just that i, I do think the abstraction the abstractionists if you were to call them that are, are uh, over 
conversating a lot of the they abstract away key details that uh, matter so there it's sort of a very uh, spheric uh, assume a cow is a sphere sort of thinking which you know works but you can't you, you can't model a farm with spherical cows right i i think the thing that the theorists are most wrong about well, may, may not necessarily even be the likelihood of alignment, but just if you look at the early stuff that Eliezer wrote into the 2000s, there's very much a spirit of a fast takeoff where the AI just comes online, you write some code, and then eventually just an overnight it goes from becomes 100 times smarter. And one thing that was interesting in the podcast is that he really hadn't updated that in any way, given the clear and evident slow takeoff that's coming as a result of these LLMs. You know, you have these like scaling laws that are super straight. You can chart them on a log graph. That that seems like the thing where they're really haven't integrated that into worldview more so than alignment. Well, I don't know what you think about that. I think they generally underrate the problems of hardware more than uh, most practitioners do. Because for anybody who's training these, you know, when I do it on my Mac, I'm 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 always irritated by the by the by the slowness of it. I don't want to buy a GPU. But the same is true for anybody trying to do research on these, which is that they realize how much of a key constraint hardware is. So if you were uh, trying to predict AI progress, you should probably be spending, you know, more time on the internals of uh, GPUs than much more. So I think that was one of the main mistakes of sorts from the classical AI risk view, which is that, um, you know, they uh, assumed away the, the, the hardware constraint. The other thing I feel that they missed was that if I were to summarize the classical AI risk view, you know, quite uh, in, in, quite simply, it would be that we are going to build a super smart optimizer, and it is very hard to control super smart optimizers because they will optimize for whatever you you, you give them to, and you have to give them the right value function to optimize. But um, the more you you look at it, a um, you know, outside of very specific control environments, the sort of optimizers we have in the reinforcement learning agents don't perform really well in the real world, right? The most popular use case for 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 AI right now is text generation, and and that does extremely well. So I do think that you know, it's not impossible that text generating AIs have are, are can be catastrophically dangerous. It is just that um, the sort of uh, threat model you'd be thinking of is much more different than uh, the optimizer threat model. Yeah, it could be the case, but is your claim that because it's not RL, it's not going to be super hardcore optimizing some utility function, and rather it'll just be the inference on next token prediction is going to be much more straightforward? I mean, it's it's sort of like, um, if you think of the, um, you know, the thought experiment would be that you tell the AI, find a way to cure cancer, but you do not spe- specify, don't kill all the humans, and it kills all the humans instead, because it's focusing on killing cancer. But on the other hand, if you gave GPT-4 any asked it uh, tell me how to cure cancer it's gonna act in the way a human would and uh, um, yes. it's, it, it's, it's not going to straightforwardly optimize for curing cancer whatever method we, we used to train it you know pushes it closer to the distribution of human thought than as sometimes superhuman human thought but still it's not this alien intelligence it's a very humanish intelligence right, right right i think i did try to challenge eliezer on this in the podcast quite a bit and he just wouldn't allow for the possibility that we don't live in the worst of all possible worlds. I mean, alignment might just be an intractable problem no matter how hard you work at it. I don't know if we have good reason to think that. But out of all the possible worlds we could be in at the beginning of the intelligence revolution, we're in a pretty good one, right? We're The thing we're training them on is the output of human text. So in some sense, you would expect them to be a little bit 
pre-trained in human drives. Um, you know, the people who are working on this stuff, the the CEOs of these, all these labs are at least somewhat alignment pilled. So as far as things go, we're pretty lucky. Okay, yeah. Um, let's move on to a different topic now. You've seen a lot of cities in the United States. You've spoken to uh, Ed Glazer, who writes about urban economics. What is the best city you have, you know, in terms of urban design that you have been to? I haven't been to that many cities. I live in San Francisco right now, and I really like it. You know, it's like super walkable. There's parks everywhere. Obviously, there's the artificial restricted supply of housing here that's well known. Uh, but, you know, it looks nice. <laughs> There's like Victorian houses everywhere. Yeah, I like San Francisco. Obviously, the housing situation aside, if you were to redesign, um, you know, San Francisco in some way, that is in terms of the urban design, how would you how would you change that? Because I've heard extremely good things about San Francisco in terms of, you know, it's a nice place to live. Shame if there, there wasn't there were more houses and less crime. But, you know, uh, besides that, how would, what have you learned from talking to Ed Glazer that, uh, about urban economics and applying it to San Francisco that you wouldn't have before? Yeah, well, I don't know if I learned from Ed Glazer, but it just seems that, that office spaces are very congregated in the downtown area. And that doesn't seem necessary to me. Intermixing, you know, offices and other kinds of things near where I live. So you don't have to walk far to get anywhere or to get to different kinds of establishments would be nice. You know, if Robert Moses was in charge of San Francisco, what would he do? Oh, there's no highways or there's very few highways running through the city. And I think he would just be uh, shocked by the small streets that cars travel through. Although there isn't that much traffic because I assume people have traveled away because of the pandemic. Yeah, the, the city is very much geared towards public transit. I don't think that would last long. I'm imagining the arteries of the city just, you know, bursting over. What other projects did uh, Moses do other than highways? A lot of bridges. Yeah, you know what? That, that's something I'd expect. The BART, um, which is this underground tunnel, I'd expect some expansions to that. I'd expect like another Golden Gate Bridge to start construction. Lots more parks, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that's a good point. I would expect, yeah, all kinds of cool things to happen with Golden Gate Park. Um, some of them might look like uh, industrial monstrosities to some people, but I would just expect them to be really well run. Um, and... Jones Beach was one of Robert Moses's famous projects. And it was just like an astonishing achievement that this huge beach was super clean and super well organized. What else? What else did Moses do? What else could be done in San Francisco that would be like that? I think there were just like three big things, which are like roads, bridges, and parks. But mostly because the uh, the urban experience is dominated by roads and bridges, and the uh, urban vacation experience is dominated by parks and beaches. So if you were to model Moses not as an urban planner, but sort of a guy who wanted to control the urban experience, you've you've hit like ninety percent of where people spend their time. Well, there were, there was the interesting thing in the book that there was these uh, ways in which Moses would keep try to keep the parks clean and not just in terms of trash, but in terms of who he thought was desirable to be there. And there's even some funny passive ex aggressive examples where the the kids who were responsible for cleaning up the beaches, they would be tasked with if somebody dropped some trash on the beach, they would go up in front of him and pick it up so that they could see, you know, this is, you know, this is what you're causing here. Yeah, I'd expect a very interesting behavior when they're confronted with the homeless and the the mentally ill that some, sometimes uh, reside in San Francisco's parks and uh, other public places. Now, um, you spoke to Ken Jackson a while ago, who sort of gave a defense of Moses, you know, 
what was his thesis? Why wasn't Moses the villain that they, that, that the Robert Taylor book made him to be? Kenneth Jackson's main point, and Kenneth Jackson is the preeminent historian on New York. His main point is Caro is not putting Moses in the context of his time. In particular, not in the context of other cities during the early to mid 20th century, which suffered much worse than New York ended up suffering in the 70s. So New York did have this sort of bust in the 70s, but other cities just completely collapsed, places like Detroit. And had it not been for Moses, New York would have faced, uh, fared even worse. And it's unfair to look at Moses, you know, look at because the, the power brokers published, uh, I think, around the 70s when New York was going through a trough and people were looking for somebody to blame. Another defense is that you can just look at how the government in New York functions today. I think even to this day, basically all the highways that are built in New York State have been built by Moses. The last project he was working on before he was forced into retirement was, I think, this bridge. And that bridge is has not been built to this day after Moses was taken off that project. So compare that uh, sometimes insensitive and the uh, process that he operated under, which often trampled over people in its path to a system today where we can't get anything built at all. Um, you know, it, it, there are considerations to be made in either side. We talked last year about American retocracy, right? A large reason why we don't have um, you know, these sort of mega projects going on is because every time you do it, somebody objects, there are these million lawsuits, there are these, uh, you know, thousands of court hearings, community hearings. And um, what do you think will push people out of this? Is this just a uh, a feature of the developed world that uh, one, if you want to do something, everybody's got to agree on it? Or, or, or do you think it's just a, a local minima we've, we are stuck in? Yeah, I think I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too. But so one way to read about the past is just that we were much poorer. And as we get wealthier, our preferences change and we want more safety over development. Another is that it wasn't poverty, but rather emergency conditions that caused us to uh, reevaluate our priorities. And, you know, if there's like a world war going on. You can't be prioritizing, making sure everybody's heard. Certain things have to be done on a certain timetable. But so presumably, maybe it's just not, not that we're become so wealthy, but we just haven't had a big crisis that demands immediate attention. When we did have COVID, we got Operation Warp Speed through, right? And that was a huge um a huge boost. On the other hand, we had a whole bunch of cataclysmic bureaucratic failures even during COVID. There is a sort of a scope and sensitivity to the size of government budgets, institutional budgets, and uh, what they can get done with them. You just look at the size of San Francisco city budget and how meager are the effects of spending that money towards public health and public safety. You know, how far could somebody like Robert Moses take the six billion or whatever that San Francisco takes in revenue a year? Hmm. You say Robert Moses. I think we should you should be hiring somebody from Singapore to do it instead. We've, um, yeah. You know, Singapore is the highest construction costs of um, underground subway in the world. But every day, I mean, every six months, there's a new MRT line popping up. So, so, so I do think um, part of it is just a question of um, you know, as you, as you said, safety over, over over economic growth. But another part of it is just the question of political structures of how much uh, value do you give to these people's voices and there's an optimal uh, amount of that well, one part of me says yes if, if there was a serious crisis we would give it up but the other part of me says that you know uh, the reason why we have this is because the political structures in these cities are by have been you know, for various reasons biased towards uh, listening to people and 
clearing their objections as compared to this, as as compared to building the thing. And I feel that was one of the major overreactions of the anti-Moses sentiment of the 70s. Right. Uh, I actually didn't know that the construction was really expensive in Singapore and they do it anyways. Well, why is it so expensive? Is it labor cost or what is it? I think it's labor cost. Also, just like Singapore is a really congested place and there's not much, you know, um, we, we try to have as much MRT that is, I think it's Mass Rail Transit or Mass Rapid Transit, I can't remember, but it's the underground subway we have underground as possible because uh, there's not much space above the ground. So that's one of the things. Uh, why does Singapore do it anyways? We have this institutional... Um, how do I put it, inertia of just building MRT lines. And the other part is just that uh, relative to other cities, we one of the main problems of being on an island is that there's only so much space and that space gets eaten up by cars. You're in a, you, 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 you end up like Jakarta or, or Los Angeles where, where it's traffic all the time. So uh, a big part of Singaporean, you know, 100-year grand strategy is ensure that it is not required to have a car and make the car so expensive. But so if you stop building the metro lines, uh, people get angry because you already made the cars $150,000 anyways. <laughs> Although I guess if your point is that the vitocracy is making things more expensive, do they have something like strong community engagement procedures when they're building uh, these lines in Singapore? And if not, why is it still so expensive? There is strong community engagement in favor of building the lines, but uh, you know, to get to get to your point, um, the reason why it's it's so expensive is because underground uh, is is part A is just that the underground uh, drilling in a place where there's already so much build sure, sure. takes a lot of time and money, and the other reason is, uh, yeah, I mean, labor is 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 one part, but I don't think it's actually that much expensive compared to um compared to the uh, rest of the world because most of the people hired to for construction are from Bangladesh and India and China rather than Singapore itself. Right. So the other reason is just that Singapore, you know, many countries which which build rails have a copy and paste structure, but you can't copy and paste in Singapore because there's not much co- much place to paste. So you can't uh, standardize it. I, I guess we didn't talk that much about the. Uh, is this, are we stuck on? Are we stuck with this uh, structure basically? And yeah, there, there's like a few things that could, well, it depends on what the cause is. If the cause is just wealth, then do we want it to change? If the cause is, uh, you know, liberal values, I don't mean liberal in the American context. I just mean, you know, modern uh, values of, you know, making sure everybody's voice is heard and you're not trampling over any group or person. I don't know. I don't want to regress to a world where we got to get rid of all those values, uh, even if we've, uh, I'm sure we've overcorrected, but Maybe maybe just like emergencies, but then do we want more emergencies? Do we want a World War Three? So I'm not sure what the solution is. I mean, I I think of it in terms of two things. The first is like, um, you know, we don't like to admit it, but like every country has a conception of what it wants to be, right? Americans, there's this um, there's this idea that in the past Americans wanted to be the country of um, you know, of of of, of where. We are free from the government and we do things, which is uh, a lot of how American political structures happen. Political opinions were expressed till maybe about the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, when you had, um, you know, uh, the William Jennings Bryan, I think, who uh, gave the gold standard speech. And then the, the, in the 30s, you, you, you had this resurgence with, with, with FDR, where the point was, you know, uh, we're struggling and we want the government to help us. That sort of became the ethos in which things were done. And that, um, you know, that is, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying it's, 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 it's the way you imagine yourselves as a country. In Singapore, on the other hand, again, ethos is a, is a hard word. Like the the basic, uh, you know, water in which we swim is we have to keep moving or else we're stuck. 
you know, it's sort of similar to liberal, to like America having liberal values. But also, also, a lot of it is just that Americans do not have that sense of national urgency as the rest of the world does. Partially because you're isolated, and uh, you know, there's this. It's a, it's, a, it's a geographically one of the world's best places to be. Right, nobody can invade you. But also partially because, but the, and the, the large isolate the isolation and large size just means that. Um, you're not facing that competition every. You're not seeing the competition every. You, you might. You're definitely facing it. So um, I I don't think the main reason is just that you don't you don't have that that urgency and it's not liberal values as it is. It's just uh you know we're rich. We don't we. It's 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 not even safety. I I if it was about safety, we'd be focusing a lot more different things. You know, the world's quite safe these days. We'd be focusing on things like reducing car accidents than reducing public transit. So um, I do think it's more of the idea that hey, we've gone so far and we don't need to go further. And um, you know, despite what I tell you on Twitter, uh, accelerationism is not a very popular ideology. So that is the main problem, rather than uh, specific political values. Yeah, although if you are an advocate of uh, acceleration anyways, I mean, I don't mean this in the context of AI stuff, but just in general. You know, Holden Karnofsky had this interesting blog post where he says, as societies evolve, the situation they get into is basically more community engagement-like stuff, and that's good. That's basically where they they should end up. I guess this has equivalence in organizations as well, where as companies get bigger, they go from, we're going to ship this feature even if it's broken, to let's make sure all the HR and PR and legal are all included in decision-making. Community engagement is not a value of its own. It's only an instrumental good. I actually strongly disagree with like his point that you know community instru- like you know community engagement is a good thing because partially it's just that if you don't like the- you live in a democracy, right? You don't like the thing, show it on the on the- show it on the uh, ele- election day. You-, you can't have um the reason why we have representative democracy is because you know we say that it is incredibly hard to. Like, say, I want Hillary Clinton's foreign policy, Donald Trump's trade policy, and uh, Joe Biden's investment spending. You can't do that. And part of the reason is just that we say we want leaders who are for growth, and but then we restrict their growth by putting all these side constraints on them. So I, I, I disagree. We do have community uh, engagement. That's that's called election day. If you don't like it, vote them out. So that is the, uh, no, that, that's my main counterpoint to Karnofsky's idea right right there there is an interesting perspective here where um you know libertarian type people have often been advocates of more local government and it seems that uh, this might exactly be the problem because the cost of growth are very local but the benefits are global and so you're you know you're you're just artificially the the exact people who are hurt most uh, in this marginal way by more growth more are the ones you're querying instead of just pu- pulling the national audience on, should this industry exist or should there in general be more housing? Mm. I think libertarians overrate local government because it used to give libertarian solutions. I do not think they have a uh, intrinsic value for local government. Also, their philosophy is that the closer you are to the, the decision, the better decisions you make, which is why families make better decisions about their own choices than governments and so on. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, part of it is just that, like, I don't think that, um, you know, if I, so I could offer an, an alternative libertarian perspective, which would be that um, that makes sense. You know, you want to maximize the incentives in the political system to generate freedom. So you're sort of like misapplying the heuristic that, you know, look closer is better. But like the other thing I um, generally dislike, I mean, everybody dislikes libertarians because they value something apart from freedom. And like, I dislike libertarians because I, uh, I guess I value, um, there's this strain of libertarian thought. You might, you, you might split this into the, uh, how to put it, into the Mises versus Tyler Cowen's strands of libertarian thought, right? And one would be the intrinsic focus on libertarianism for its own sake. And the other would be the focus on mechanisms to become more prosperous. And, you know, libertarianism is, is only instrumentally valuable as a as a way of getting there. And I, I do think that, that, like, when you consider it from the second perspective, local government isn't all that it's made to be. There's a interesting counterpoint here in, in India where, um, you know, so in Indian Constituent Assembly, when they were debating how much power do we want for cities, villages, and states, and the central government, uh, one of India's most important constitutional scholars, you might have, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, his name is um, uh, Ambedkar. He was the first uh, Dalit lower caste person to go to uh, University of Dalit, etc. He said, if we let the local villages and cities have too much power, the local prejudices and the local, you know, the old ways of thinking take, uh, take root over here. I do think that's like one of the things that libertarians have to understand, which is that closer isn't better mostly because we the amount of like global exposure is better individually and also for for complex decisions you just don't have the con- the capacity to make these at a local level so you know that's that's one of my main disagreements with them huh i know i mean i, I would say like steel man them is saying for complex decisions where there's so much variation between different um principalities it's exactly the local level at which they would have the uh, expertise in their local problems, right? Um, at least for certain problems. I, I, I mean, sort of agree. I guess this is very context dependent. If you're, if you're talking about like a multi-city rail line that's going to go, you probably want this done at the state or national level because that, that's where all the benefits are there. On the other hand, if you're talking about like some social issue, probably better to do it at the at the local level. Might not be better for the loser of the social issue, but like, you know, better for political cooperation. If you were to uh, move on to a different topic, I feel that nobody wants to hear 30 minutes about libertarianism anymore. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, I want to talk to you about um, a bit, little bit about your past podcast itself. What makes a bad podcast question, in your opinion? There's so many different things. It's such a long list. One is something that they've already answered elsewhere, obviously, even though it's asked again and again. You know, what is your book about? Another is something that is not their expertise or something, nothing you would expect them to necessarily have interesting views on. If you ask, I don't know, some random expert in you have an economist on and you ask him, what was it like growing up in the Midwest? Maybe you can ask it in a way that's more relevant to their expertise. But if you just ask these generic questions about your upbringing or your thoughts on love or whatever, it's like, well, who, you know, who gives a shit, right? Like, why would you expect this guy to have so interesting thoughts on love? Ask him about economics or something that he could apply economics, uh, an economic lens to. Yeah. Questions that could allow for so many answers that could plausibly have answered the question. A good question is very specific. The broader the question is, the more likely you are to just hit a cache uh, instead of percolating some interesting new insight. 
And in general, for some reason, specific or general questions just lead to more dull answers because they lead to general answers, which are less satisfying. I think Tyler Cowen also has a list about this. And one of the advices he gives there is in the preamble to the question, include include some information that shows you understand the what they're talking about so that they don't feel the need to regurgitate the b basic context. Well, okay, but with the obvious one, which uh, is so surprising that it's not done that much, is a question you actually have. Sometimes for the, for the audience, you have to sort of back up and say, well, first of all, before we get into this, can you explain in general terms what X is? And then you can ask specific questions. But don't ask, a, don't make the whole interview or significant percent of the interview questions that you don't actually have. And this is uh, related to the first thing about don't ask about like what it was like growing up in the Midwest to um, some scientist. Like, do you give a shit what it was like growing up in the Midwest? Uh, <laughs> like, probably not, right? So why would you expect your audience to care? It's just like something you think you're supposed to ask. Yeah, so like something you actually want to know is like a good start. Yeah, some interviewers extract a lot more about their, about their interviewees than other people do. What separates these people from the desk? Their understanding of the topic itself and the interviewees work, um, it seems like a prerequisite. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I, I agree. But I think another part is just having a good model of how the interviewee is going to respond. So if I were like interviewing uh, Tyler Cowen, like I would like read 15 or 20 of the most recent, um, you know, conversations with Tyler, see what, what he does. And that's a very different thing from knowing, from knowing the subject matter he knows, which is also important. But like you have to know what buttons to press in that person. Sure. Yes. The, very much agree. You interviewed, I think, like six people. I'm, I'm saying it from memory from the effective altruism community over the last two years. This is like good Twitter bait. What did they get right and what did they get wrong? It's this. It's the uh, million dollar question. I, f I feel. I'm not gonna have some original take here because effective altruism has been criticized in so many different ways, <laughs> and they've subsidized this criticism in so many different ways that. You're, you're, it's probably uh, crit the criticism is uh, already oversupplied, so I'm not going to have an original take here. But one interesting thing was, um, you know, I asked Will, Will McCaskill had this book about long-termism, and I asked him, you know, companies, the purpose of a company is to maximize the long-term cash flow or discounted cash flow of the business. And so in some sense, aren't they an institution that has been, that is the incentives built in to last a long time? And of course, you respond that actually most companies, uh, the average lifespan of a company is 10 years. And then I asked, well, does that tell us something about trying to optimize for the long term? But does that say something about the effect of altruism in general? Where I was trying to take that was perhaps that suggests that there's a less of a interfacing with the practical realities of what it takes to run an organization or a movement or good outcomes in the long term. Actually, I don't, I don't even believe that. Let me, let, me, let me just think through this answer before I answer. You know, while you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I think the other way to put it would be that you cannot have philosophers as the main, um, as the only people in your movement, because like, you know, by definition, they're very good at philosophy, but not necessarily at the other stuff that is part of running a movement. Right. And this is another uh, where if the philosophers are the people who get to decide what the movement needs more of, what, what do you think they're going to suggest? Right. More um, math. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think, like, am I, am I making some boring criticism of effective altruism? Because at the end of the day, it's all good to remember, you know, 100,000 lives saved just from malaria bed nets alone. 
isn't isn't that a very different thing from I I actually am very much in favor of the part that like um you know distributes bed nets gives vaccines and vitamin A pills right that seems straightforwardly good to me but I'm you know I'm a lot more I, I wouldn't say skeptical but like confused by the part that um is using the same methodology for more complex questions it feels like a category error to me like you might ask the question what is the expected value of working of the you know the best cs graduate from mit or or cambridge working on uh, mechanistic interpretability and like that's that you i i i understand the impulse to have the to, to use the same methodology but that's a category error right you you're trying to do surgery with a hammer there definitely seems true. And in fact, I don't know if you feel this way about the things you worked on in your life, but like nobody would have said two years ago or whenever I started the podcast that like the expected value of your podcast is you get to, you know, whatever cool things. I'm not talking in terms of like the good values for the uh, utility for the world as a whole, just utility for me. If I had done the calculations on a piece of paper, it would be like a ridiculous thing to do. The calculations would have said, you know, go, 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 go do your homework, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> Go go grind lead code. Right, exactly. So here's my actual criticism. Thanks for prompting me in this way. See, it does seem like the most impactful people in history don't seem to make decisions this way, for better or for worse, right? Often, they're, uh, often their motivations are very self-serving. Yeah, like who, who's been super impactful for the better who started off his career thinking in this way? It, it, it seems to discourage a certain kind of exploration that seems necessary to especially for the super high achievers they they just do weird things that can't be justified for their own sake early on yeah and um i would add that um this is like the, the part that i like about bed nets and vaccines the the same the similar criticism applies which is that they're very reluctant on focusing on policy work especially when it comes to like you know if you ask yourself the question in 1970 till 2020 in the last 50 years what was the most impactful thing for the developing world and the answer was just like uh wait for Mao Zedong to die in 1976 and go on the and go on the boat ride with uh, the new Chinese leaders or like in in India in, in 1991 after the, uh, Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated there was this you know vacuum and we were really lucky that the right people were there at the, the right time. So, in fact, I think they underrate uh, uh, normal development economics, which, which talks about policy and politics uh, too much, because that's the, you know, we've done the micro inter, uh, interventions quite a bit, but you have to sort of like, uh, you know, hold your breath and jump into the pool of, uh, of growth, because that's like, that's the only, you know, it's going to pay for so many bed nets. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. No, no, that, that's a, that's actually a really good point. I, in fact, um, I'm not going to say who, but there's somebody who is uh, very, very high up in uh, in terms of influence on these um, EA organizations who I was talking to once. And I asked him, listen, if you look throughout the last 50, 100 years of history, it seems like the most good was just done by China and India liberalizing. If there was some country, some developing country where there was a big political opportunity where you could you know, fund the political campaign of, a smart guy, and if he took over, you could pass a bunch of laws. Is that something you would find? And I, I got like a very wishy-washy answer. Like maybe, I guess in theory, it's something we would like to think we would fund. And it seems like 
that's like way more important than this uh, all, all the other things combined right short of existential risk if you want to do the expected value calculation yeah actually i i think them funding a political campaign would be negative you, you do not want to open the space for foreign actors i feel very strongly about that because um like partly partially is reason that like once you start doing that you, you have all these weirdos from the other non-altruist ends of the political spectrum coming so just keep that that taboo of foreigners not interfering in politics there but the other thing that you would want to do is sort of like um, ensure career support for like-minded economists and political scientists, which in fact um, quite unrelated fact of the George Mason slash um, the you know the entire libertarianism complex is that if you you know run emergent ventures and fund like uh, five economists from developing countries every year, in fifteen or twenty years, you know some of the people you gave that initial ten thousand dollar grant to will be at the helms uh, will be in the prime minister's office. And um, I think that's like one of the most unrelated things you can do is get these promising bachelor's and master's students in India who is doing math and economics and give them, f- uh, fund their PhDs in the U.S., which makes, you know, schools more likely to accept them. And then say, don't forget us when you're in the <laughs> when you're in the prime minister's office. We'd love to help. I think that's one of the most unrelated things you could do as a as a, as a funder right now. In fact, or, also, like, you don't even have to say don't don't forget. It's the, the reason you picked them in the first place is they're sympathetic. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, and like in fact, the World Bank has these scholarships for economists from developing countries. I have a friend at the World Bank whom I will not name, but he says that's the thing he is most excited about, which is these um, really smart uh, people who are from, let's say, you know, Bangladesh. They go to the U.S. for their PhD, but they want to help their country, and they come back, and they could easily make seven figures in U.S. dollars working for some hedge fund, but they're working in the Bangladesh uh, Reserve Bank or the Ministry of Finance, and these are the people you want to encourage the most, and. I suppose the problem is that um, this leads. This is just incredibly hard to do from the outside, which is why you need to engage with the, um, you know, with the conventional development philanthropy industrial complex more. You should write that up. I mean, maybe you already have, but that, that's. Uh, I have not. I've, 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 I've a lot of ideas. I have to write up, but like you know, <laughs> what do you think they get right? Uh, is there is there like you know? I I do think generally they're better than most philanthropists, which is a low bar because most philanthropists aren't very good. You know, this is this is an interesting question related. I'll, I'll answer your question in a second. But I, I was talking with a friend once, and if you took out effective altruism, is philanthropy on net good, considering what the what the counterfactual use of that money would have been? I don't know, actually. I, I guess it's very specific on what you're planning to do. I would guess on net, no, just because the value of cash transfers is so high. You know, it's, it's money. It's, a lot of the stuff we spend should just be given as cash to people because um, you're not very good at deciding what they want. Not in terms of like you, you don't do philanthropy and you give the money directly to people, as in like a rich guy doesn't donate to Harvard and instead, whatever he was going to do with that money otherwise, oh, you know, uh, like maybe invest in his business or something. Oh, um, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, I'm not I like I, I do think like most charity in the developed world should be very focused and people who donate to established universities have no have like no, no, lack no, I'm, imagination. Not, I'm not even asking if it's like a small good. I'm asking on net. Is it even good at all? Yeah. Actually, on that, probably good because it because I mean it depends if you donate to like a to to like a the most philanthropy in U.S. goes to like uh, various interventions in inner cities, 
universities. I think those are the two things. I think interventions in inner in cities, I have no opinion on most because I've never been to them. I've never looked at the literature. I have no idea. But for universities, I mean, if you did it into a top 10 university, probably net negative. Just because like if you invested, if you literally gave the money out as dividends to your shareholders, probably lead to more net good. It's a lot less clear if you're looking outside the top 50 or top 100. And if that money goes to funding, let's say, you know, low income students, that's clearly net good to me because that's a even if you believe the even if you believe in the signaling hypothesis entirely that's still a net good for society because you have this underrated talent being recognized so no 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 because then the signal is just diluted so then the net effect uh, is not I, I mean but the net effect is just people had to spend more years in college no so if somebody who was not going to college and deserved to go to college went in went there the net effect is I mean, like your signal isn't diluted because the, uh, you know, the quality of the people having the signal increases, right? Let me give you an, an analogy. Let, let's say like, you know, state, uh, University of X has a uh, not a very good reputation because the students aren't very good. And you fund this very good student, you fund this, you know, at least above average student to go to University of X in addition to all the other not very good students. Just by a little, the reputation of universe of this university increases, right? But but uh, except for the fact that the marginal student who goes to college because of philanthropy is probably lower than the mean, not above. I don't think so, actually. Colleges are quite selective in terms of, uh, like, you know, maybe in the U.S. is different because of sports scholarships, but, like, usually when colleges give out... Um, financial aid they restrict it only if you're above average in terms of academics no 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 i mean that's uh, i don't think that's necessarily and also we're not just talking about harvard and yale here right there's tons of philanthropy that goes to other kinds of colleges for financial aid um certainly i think just overall in terms of the entire education system the the philanthropy how could it possibly be making the mean higher uh that would imply that there's like millions of students who are above the distribution who were just like going to be dish diggers or something I don't think they would be ditch diggers, but I do think they would be going to a slightly worse college. Yeah, or but the, you also have to account for the population that would not be going to college at all, right? Those presumably are making the mean lower. Uh, those are making the mean lower, but um, it depends if there's if they're not going to college for like academic reasons or financial reasons. Yeah, I, I guess this is just something you would have to measure. Like yeah, just just it? measure it itself. It's, it's too hard yeah, to figure right. it out. On the question of um, whether philanthropy on net has been good, uh, uh, one thing you consider is like a big, a big contribution from philanthropy, non-EA philanthropy, just goes to political uh, activism. And on net, probably the philanthropy to political activism, given the direction it goes in, has probably been net negative. Yeah, um, but like, is that is that counted as philanthropy? I guess that's just a definitional question. Sure, fair enough. Okay, so what does effective altruism get right? I, well, I mean, just that's like core tenants are obviously applied in the proper context. Makes sense. You should be rigorous about what you give to and what you, uh, how you th- prioritize different causes. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, the the part where they uh, evaluate, uh, I, I guess, you know, the question that you have to rigorously evaluate various cause areas or whatever, I, uh, you know, that's 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 fairly good. On um on a, on a, another note, you know, um. Have you read the Tyler Cowen blog post about how do you practice, how pianists practices their their skills? Yes, I have read that. And presumably you're going to ask me how I practice. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. A sort of contrived answer I could give is that I'm like, when I'm reading things, I try to come up with questions um, just sort of naturally. But I think most people do that when they're reading something, right? You have a question. 
Um, I guess I'm more intentional about writing them down. But other than that, nothing that intentional. I, I, I do think an, an intentional way of practice is just like DMing smart people or getting group chats with them and, and arguing with them, which is like... Ne- yes, I do which do is, that. <laughs> which, is, which is like net negative for like most people, but you could, you could possibly get that to be very positive if you spend your time well. Yeah, but it's not even clear what I am doing. So then how do you uh, practice it? I mean, it's it's not that hard. Just take a tweet. Just take something you 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 want. You're thinking. You're thinking about tweet it. Put in the group chat. Fight. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 like like you know how you know like wrestlers do their like one hour of uh, practice every day. You gotta do. I'm not saying that it's as you know important to do it as 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 it is for wrestlers. I'm just saying that um that's an important in today's social context. That is an important way of keeping your mind fresh. Sure. Yeah, and I, I get my fair share of arguing in. I'll definitely, I'll definitely uh, admit to that. <laughs> I mean, well, one thing that is important for well, that I've been doing more so recently is that being actually engaged with uh, a technical material, even if the technical material itself doesn't end up being that useful, just making sure that skill doesn't atrophy, that you can still think in a rigorous, quantitative way, that you understand at a technical level the subjects you're talking about. Yeah, if you're, if you're going to talk about AI and you could have the potential to do this, you should implement a transformer from scratch, right? Yeah. Or at least like with some help. Um, yeah, just yeah. like, how, how are you going to have an opinion about this and not, not make an effort? Yeah, it's, 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 I think one of the great parts about the Camden explosion in YouTube tutorials is that uh, you can, you know, anybody with like, I guess, if you, if you know zero about AI and have like one week plus laptop, you can spend, you know, out of the 160 hours, 168 hours, you, you can spend eight hours a day doing it. At the end of the week, you'll be up to you know, med- like a below median level at it. It's entirely uh, easy to do. You know, on that on that topic, you've read a lot of Robert Cato talking about Lyndon Johnson. You interviewed somebody who talked about Napoleon. I've read both, both the books you've, you've talked about. Um, one of the things that was like, was that A, both didn't mind taking risks, B, both uh, worked extremely hard. If you were less risk averse, what would you be doing instead? Yeah, if I was willing to work harder too. Right? Yeah, if you, yeah, uh, I mean, like, if you were risk taking workaholic, where would you? I think the expected value from having hot takes is super high. Uh, and do you need to be a workaholic to do that? Well, you got to be risk taking. Um, yeah, I would just like publish way more. Like do a blog post every single day, have a lot of them be about controversial subjects. Obviously, still things I believe in, but there's people I would interview uh, that I haven't interviewed because, um, or I haven't interviewed yet because they're somewhat controversial. And I guess I have interviewed people who are controversial. Like I haven't stopped there, uh, but there's a different category of people <laughs> that uh, I was I would include. Uh, so then that would increase the sort of expected value of like how interesting the conversation is to the audience and how many people listen. And I would just publish like way more, like two podcasts a week, five blog posts a week, that, that kind of level. Uh, which uh, serving politician in the US would you want to interview if you could? I mean, I mean around the world, actually. Uh, but presumably, they're gonna, it's going to be like a normal interview, right? They're not going to yeah, be totally normally, honest. I mean, I mean, however it is, you... You you know just imagine if you co- could call the press office and say yeah I can I'll come for sure. an hour on your podcast. So part of the answer has to include somebody who I think would actually give me interesting information. 
So I would probably choose a retired politician just because I no, expect them to be uh, more honest. For which serving politician? Uh, oh, the, right, the, serving, the, yeah. the retired politicians are fun because... Because they'll talk anything, but yeah, yeah. No, that's not a hard question. <laughs> I'm like going through the countries and thinking about who is interesting. Okay, while you're um, doing it, you know, the people I would interview would be Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. I have a lot ah. of questions about these speeches. He, he gave this big speech a while ago at, uh, about the new, like, you know, we've given up on the old American consensus of fleet fleet and whatever, and I have a lot of questions about that. I would... Um, Definitely, definitely interview Jay Shankar, the Indian foreign minister. He's very eloquent, very sharp, very articulate. I want to ask him more. And the two, the two Singaporean, actually three Singaporean people I would interview. Have you heard of this guy called Tarman? Nope. No, he's this. Um, he used to be a Singaporean fi- uh, finance minister for a lot of time. Um, he's a quite an in- in- interesting story. He was a was a sort of like a literary geek in his youth. Went to the LSC. Was like a leftist activist there. Again, and then he became the, the central bank governor. Became uh, deputy prime minister, finance minister, etc., etc. Et and um, he's one of the mo- and he's running for the ceremonial role of president of Singapore. I think he's and he's so popular. He surely sh- win. The second is um, the there's the incoming prime minister of Singapore, uh, Lawrence Wong. They, they basically announced that he's the next party president. And the third is the Singaporean leader of the opposition, who is also very articulate. Um, he's he's a he has a serious uh, how do I put it? I don't know. He has a serious don't mess with me vibe. So he's and he's very very um, he's one of the few people who is not in the ruling party and has and can debate quite well. So as those three would be mine. Yeah, the, the first one is the most interesting, but also the person who's like not technically a politician is a national security advisor for politician. They're political appointee without question. Like Henry Kissinger, is he is he a politician? Uh, I think so. Right, it's a good point. Uh, well, in that sense, Kissinger is still influential. So mm-hmm. wait, wait, is he still alive? He he is alive. Yeah, he he, yeah. he wrote a book about AI recently. Wrote <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually him. Because uh, if, if your definition includes people who are politically influential, he's still politically influential. He's, he's, he's seen a whole bunch of shit. I gotta, you gotta ask him about. But I'm not that, uh, unfortunately, I'm not that caught up on political figures to identify people I think would be interesting. You speak to a lot of people with unusual ideas. Right? You, you spoke to Michael Humer two years ago. You spoke to, I guess, um, Sam Aburja. You spoke to Hananiam. And you, you know, you're, you're sort of, uh, I would say you're public intellectual you yourself. Um, if you've noticed, most public intellectuals don't have very long shelf lives, right? Like think of Tom Friedman. 20 years ago, he was the, he was the, you know, he was, he was everything, right? And uh, 10 years ago, somewhat. Now he's just a random New York Times columnist. What are you doing to extend your shelf life? Well, uh, I, I don't have like one thing or one subject I'm obsessed about and in the case of Tom Friedman, it was just that, in some sense, he was just really successful. And the, the world is flat stuff, like really took off. We all buy it. And so one of the one of the f- problems is that their insights are just absorbed in the wider culture. And you think, oh, that's such a cliche, that's so boring. But it's just because of how successful they've been. You definitely notice this with some other thinkers where, I don't know, uh, every Peter Thiel talk, you can go 0.25% speed faster. <laughs> There's just like so much regurgitated material. 
So what, what do you do to extend that? But the, the people I really admire a lot, uh, you know, Byrne, for example, Tyler, they just, they, they're continuously learning about so many different fields and doing it not in a sort of generalist polymathic way. Like I'm going to read the popular science book about X, but no, I will actually read the textbook. I will do the problems uh, in the literal and a metaphorical sense and uh, doing that again and again, contributing in a substantive way, in a rigorous way to different ideas and different fields. Do I do that? I don't know. To the extent that I do that to any field at all, I do that to different fields. But uh, very plausibly, I don't do that to any fields. But then there's nothing to lose. I really like talking to you. I think uh, most people I know are going to love this. So uh, love the conversation. Great, great. Yeah, this is a pleasure, man.